This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Stephen Colebrook, your host for today's episode of New Books in History. Today I'll be speaking with Professor Latawa about her important new book, Bad Girls, Young Women, Sex and Rebellion Before the Sixties. Latawa utilises an eclectic range of sources to chart the variegated sexual lives of women and adolescent girls during the 1940s and 1950s. In doing so, she argues that wartime upheaval and post-war transformation opened up new avenues for social and sexual assertion for young women. Welcome to the program, Professor Latawa. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for reading and talking and sharing information about the book. We always begin our show by asking our guests what brought them to history. So what brought you to the study of post-war sexual culture? I would say that my interest in the field and the kinds of questions that I ultimately asked, if not the specific content, really started as an undergrad. So I was at Cornell University in the mid-1990s, and I ended up cobbling together a self-designed major in race, gender, and sexuality in the contemporary United States. And I really couldn't make up my mind about what I wanted to focus on, so I did some lit studies, some political theory, and some history, um, and a little bit of legal theory, too. And this was during the time when there was this huge growth in the influence of post-structural theory, feminist and queer theory, intersectionality, and whiteness studies. I mean, all of that was really vibrant at Cornell at that time. Um, so that's, I think, what really, that's, those are, that's the environment in which I really, I think, came to think in the ways that I do in the book about gender, power, race, sexuality, um, and just the contradictions of um, sort of repressive systems, right? Um, like signaling Foucault there. So by the time I got to grad school at Berkeley, I was really getting more interested in law and society. I considered doing a joint JD PhD and just kind of like couldn't face <laughs> that much formal education at one time. Um, so I didn't end up doing it, but I did work with um, especially Kristen Luker, who was one of their feminist um, legal scholars. And I uh, got really curious about. Um, how gender and women um, were stigmatized through criminal justice systems. And so there was this kind of crime angle, which ended up working its way out of much of the book. I mean, it's there, but more for the wartime period. Um, but in my, in my first grad research seminar at Berkeley um, with Mary Ryan at the time, um, 
she later left Berkeley, but while she was there, she was my advisor and she, um, we read about the post-war period and I was particularly interested in just these intense contradictions, um, and sort of hypocrisies, um, of the post-war period. And I had this interest in crime. So I went to her and said, well, like, I'm really interested in gender and crime in the fifties, but I have no idea what to do my paper on. And she said, go talk to, um, Waverly Lowell, who I haven't been in touch with in a really long time, but she was an archivist at Berkeley who then sent me to the law library and just said, start looking through statute books from the fifties. <laughs> I thought that sounded incredibly boring, um, and was not terribly excited, but did as I was told. And within a few hours, uh, found this reference, um, in the statute books for California legislation in the 19- in the early fifties to a 1953 law, making it a misdemeanor to solicit drinks. Um, in bars. And, and that was just like, what, you know, why, why would you make that a crime? What do they mean? Um, why is that a problem? And it just, it was probably the only time in my, ah, there's one more, which I can get to later, because uh, it regards me more recent work, but um, it was the first of maybe two times in my career when it, you really like pull the thread and a whole story unravels. Um, and in this case, I, that led me to the hearings for the law itself, which talked about big girl drink solicitors, um, and um, also to these alcoholic beverage control board hearings, which related the testimony of women who were themselves drink solicitors, as well as you know others involved or you know scrutinizing um, the trade and the social historical material and content of these sources was so powerful, and just the the insight that they provided into the creativity and resourcefulness of these women in this moment um, was, was so compelling to me. And I think um, I'm still really driven by the tension between the creativity and resourcefulness and persistence and kind of irreverence of women and girls and other gender nonconforming folks um, in the face of gendered and sexual oppression, um, often as it you know, intersects with and is shaped by racism and classism and other forms of oppression as well. So it's that tension, right? And the the ways that people navigate oppressive structures and systems and managed often to find joy and pleasure in the process, um, despite the difficulties um, that they face, but still a pretty central um, source of um, interest and motivation for me as a researcher. Great, thanks very much. Uh, so you start your book with an account of how certain women took advantage of increased mobility during World War II to seek adventure, work, and sex. Could you outline for us the war's impact on sexual independence? Sure. Um, I mean, certainly at its most basic level, the war just created a huge amount of upheaval, um, even in the United States, where, of course, uh, there wasn't actual fighting as there was in Europe. So it's a, a different form of upheaval, but mostly in terms of population movement, right? Um, young people leaving their homes, um, young men obviously moving to across the country into different regions of the country where they'd never spent time um, for training um, and, you know, mobilization and then ultimately demobilization. Um, and all of these women and girls um, who followed them right? Um, either as members of a couple um, or just in order to participate in 
the commercial and social economies that formed around encampment and base and port areas. Um, and, and, and that those opportunities were often financial also. So obviously like women, um, adult women were able to work in the war industries, um, white women in particular, but as white women moved into the war industries, even, um, African-American women and other women of color were able to improve the, their own financial opportunities, um, either by taking up jobs that women had done, white women had done outside of the war industries or by, in some cases, getting war industry jobs, right? Although we know they were their last hired and first fired in most cases. Um, and teen girls um, were able to get jobs, um, work for the USO, right? Um, or participate in USO um, social events. Um, and they were, and they often left school in order to travel, um, even sometimes to, at, to, you know, go to training schools or vocational schools and other places. Um, so there was just a lot of movement. And as teen girls moved away from their families or, you know, young women moved away from their families and their home communities, they gained access not only to money, um, and opportunities, but also, to anonymity and to a lack of familial supervision and community scrutiny um, and control. So um, there were there were opportunities there for a lot of just experimentation um, that just hadn't existed um, in the same way or on the same scale at any rate um, before the war. Um, there was also this cover um, of patriotism. And of course, I don't mean to suggest that no one was genuinely patriotic. Certainly they were, but the in all kinds of ways, the culture kind of embraced a patriotic ethos, which um, I think provided a certain amount of license um, to young people to um, to embrace the moment that they, you know, the moment of opportunity, either before young men actually, you know, were, went abroad to fight um, or when they were back on furlough, right? So there were, we know that the, like the rates of marriages um, jumped. Um, and, um, a lot of those marriages were very hasty and didn't last <laughs> particularly long, right? We see large, like post-war divorce rates spiking in the immediate post-war years, right? Before we get, before the baby boom really sets in. Um, so there was a lot of, just a lot of upheaval, a lot of change, um, a lot of opportunity for spontaneity and adventure, um, and, and, uh, you know, and, and justification, I think, for going against some of the forms of um, sort of conventional sexual control and morality um, that had, was primarily influenced by, you know, by families and, and communities and religious institutions um, that, that were just less powerful during the war. Uh, and how did the state respond to these trends and how did uh, subsequently girls and women react to the policing of their sexuality? Right. So a lot of this, the sources that I used um, for the early part of the book, a lot of them are from the Social Protection Division, um, which was a division of the federal government created for World War II, like during World War II, it were actually prior to, like in the early 1940s, um, before the U.S. entered the war, um, in anticipation of the U.S. entering the war because there was an awareness um, because of the history of World War I, right, that venereal disease rates were likely to spike, that prostitution um, would be a problem, um, and that the federal government needed to manage um, the effects 
of extramarital and non-marital sexuality um, in pretty active ways. Um, the irony that I found in looking at all of these studies and all of these sources is that they just weren't very effective, right? So they they tried the one way in which they were effective, and of course, the division itself worked with local um, law enforcement agencies, so state agencies, local agencies. Um, and um, so the one way in which they were effective was really reducing the number of commercial brothels. Um, so, you know, designated, devoted, visible commercial, you know, establishments for sexual commerce um, went down dramatically um, and red light districts were closed. And, but what happened, of course, <laughs> in a certain way, um, is that uh, the women who worked there didn't stop selling sex. They just changed the ways that they did it, right? So instead of working mm -hmm. in a brothel, we see a rise of more casual street prostitution, what the federal authorities called um, pickups, right? Um, where you really weren't quite sure at any given time whether a woman was selling sex or just offering, you know, casual sex, um, not necessarily commercially. And so that line blurred because the uh, sort of spatial containment of commercial sexuality was removed. Um, so commercial, semi-commercial, bleeding into casual um, sex and sexual availability, availability um, spread and rose. Um, and of course, so did venereal disease, right? Transmission, mm -hmm. which the federal government continued and public health officials continued to essentially blame women for, but of course, you know, required participation in transmission by both parties um, that were involved in sexual interactions. Um, so um, there, you know, there, while there, we did see condoms become available during the war um, and the military did make them available to U.S. Uh, service members, um, they weren't used in any widespread way and the effort continued to be on sort of policing the sexuality of women, um, rather than trying to, you know, really influence, um, men's sexual behavior. So in World War I, there had been more of an effort to try to convince, uh, men not to have, um, as much, you know, casual sex. Um, but that by, by the 1940s, that was no longer seen as a particularly tenable or mm -hmm. effective strategy. So that the effort really shifted, um, onto enforcement um, for women and girls. And one of the results of that was the use of quarantine, um, which was more widespread. I mean, certainly historians had written about that before, um, but it's something that I also emphasize is, was, you know, re represented terrible violations of civil liberties during the war. I mean, um, women who were arrested um, on charges of vagrancy or disorderly conduct um, or actual prostitution um, were subjected to mandatory venereal disease testing and then often quarantined um, anywhere from, you know, a week to six months in many cases. Um, and so there's this, there's this element of the wartime home front, which involved the, the criminalization um, of women and the incarceration of women um, that we need to take very seriously at the same time that those actions did not bring venereal disease transmission rates down. They did not prevent um, women and girls from engaging in sexual relationships with men um, 
or servicemen, right? So they, um, the effects on actual behavior and its public health effects um, were, were quite limited. Um, ultimately, the, the Social Protection Division, I think, um, was, was more of a failure, really, um, than anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And in terms of how girls and women responded, um, I mean, some of them who were actually quarantined or arrested fought back and um, sued uh, uh, law enforcement agencies. There are a couple examples of that that I discuss in the book, and I found that um, like pretty amazing <laughs> that they had the guts and resources to do that at the time. Um, but for the most part, you know, girls and women responded by just getting creative, right, um, and, and trying to, to evade authorities in whatever ways they could, which often meant changing jurisdictions, so moving around. And again, this is where the wartime context of mobility is so important. They like just got on buses and went to different places, different states, different towns, different encampment areas um, where, you know, long pre-internet, um, there were not really um, effective national databases to track women and girls across jurisdictions. And, um, and they could, you know, continue basically what they were doing before. Um, and if they were caught again, they would move. Um, there was more attempt to control and, you know, and, and in the language of the time, certainly like protect um, juveniles mm-hmm. who did that, right? So there are some um, examples that I talk about in the book of like, a, there's one, there's a girl who, you know, um, ran away from home and she went to Texas and she like joined a circus and she worked in taverns and, but she kept getting like picked up by juvenile authorities who would then like put her on a bus and send her home. But, um, but this just kept happening and then, and she would start just getting off the bus. Right. So like the bus stops somewhere in, the, in between her, you know, home state in the Midwest, I think it was Ohio and Texas. And she would just get off and sort of start over again. Right. And sort of keep up what she felt like doing until she was, you know, um, brought in once again. And then, you know, they would send her home and then she would run away. And there's just, you just see this kind of pattern of, um, of girls getting caught up in enforcement and protective services and systems, um, and then continuing to pursue their own kind of agendas, um, in the midst of that and in quite creative ways. Great. Um, so your second chapter then moves on to the uh, the description of the B-girl, uh, which you mentioned earlier as a kind of key impetus for the research project. So women who worked in bars to seduce men into buying drinks. Um, how did this develop into kind of a professional subculture? And then how did the women who who did this blur the line between respectability and decency and sort of legality and criminality as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Really, what gave rise to the big girl trade was some of these enforcement mechanisms um, during the war. And just to be clear, like there were women soliciting drinks for profit using sexual enticement um, before the war. Um, and there's actually been I've, I and others have found um, more sources, and there's been a little bit more writing about this since um, I did the research for the book. But um, so, I mean, in the chapter, I trace the early there are early traces of it um, back in California and the, you know, mid to late 19th century. Um, so it's, it wasn't a new practice per se, but the, it changed, um, during the forties and fifties because one of the enforcement mechanisms, um, during the war was to put bars off limits to military personnel. 
if they violated the law or alcoholic beverage control provisions. So this affected um, gay bars, which were put off limits. Um, It also affected bars that were known to harbor women selling sex. Um, And um, often these sort of commercial or kind of marketplace bars where there were a lot of prostitutes were also places where women were soliciting drinks. And actually in, in the forties, there was a lot of overlap between those. So like a lot of women who were, you know, trying to get men to buy drinks and they're, and making a profit off of, you know, making a cut of the cost of each drink, um, were also selling sex right on the side or after hours or the whole time. Um, and so that, practice led to a lot of bars being placed off limits during the 1940s, like during the war, which was financial disaster for bar owners. So bar owners started policing the conduct of, of the women, you know, patronizing and working in the bars so that they wouldn't be put off limits. Um, and that meant that um, a lot of women really couldn't sell sex from bars as readily as they mm-hmm. could before, but they could make money by soliciting drinks, right? And they, you know, so it's still a form of sexualized commerce because they were still, you know, um, drawing men in by appearing to be sexually available. Sometimes they did actually, you know, um, either provide or participate in um, sexual acts, you know, in bars and in booths in the back of the bar or in places in the bar, um, that were less like visible, um, but not to the point of actually having intercourse, which could lead to the spread of venereal diseases, which would become visible to authorities because when servicemen contracted VDs or, you know, VD as they called it at the time, (laughs) sexually transmitted infections, um, they had to, fill out with, with, you know, military medical authorities supervision, um, these venereal disease contact forms. And they were asked very specific questions about like where they met the woman who they had sex with, from whom they think they contracted this disease. And of course it's always women spreading the disease to men again. Um, but so, and, and, um, military police authorities with, with other authorities would like literally try to track these women down. So so that's what had to be avoided. So there was no, you know, intercourse being allowed in these contexts, but there were still sexual acts short of that. Um, and, um, but it got, like women got creative and as you mentioned, like really did create a, um, a kind of professional subculture because there was a fair amount of kind of performance and, you know, subterfuge that was necessary for these women to be able to like, you know, I mean, what, what, what they needed is for men, the men who are buying them drinks to think that they, that the women would, were getting drunk, which often they weren't because, um, they, the drinks that the bartenders would serve to them were watered down very heavily, Mm. um, on purpose. Right. So that, because of course, like a woman couldn't make a lot of money in a night for herself or for the bar if she was terribly drunk. Right. Um, so the drinks themselves were very weak, um, or non-alcoholic entirely. And, um, so, and, but the, but of course the men buying the drinks needed to believe that this woman was going to become drunk and then would likely like be likely to have sex with him. Right. Um, so that's what the women kind of needed to perform. Um, and, um, and so they did, right. But it was like this, this kind of dance. And so, and the women needed to appear not to be working for the bar, but just to appear to be women, you know, coming to the bar for, for, you know, social or, you know, um, heterosexual pleasure. Right. 
So, um, so they would sometimes dress up in like office gear, um, especially in the early 1950s. Um, so I guess I didn't clarify exactly. So by, by the fifties, um, by the, you know, because of the war, basically, um, there was a lot less actual prostitution happening and, and the B girl trade as it emerged into more of a subculture, um, was, uh, was sexualized, right. But not involving actual sexual commerce. So by the fifties, um, there was this, um, existence of the subculture where women would sometimes dress in like office wear, saying that they were secretaries coming home from work. Um, and, um, they, uh, were just stopping by, you know, on the way home, um, to have a drink and, um, they, so they were, you know, sort of putting this on, right. And trying to mask that they were getting paid by the bar. So they would have these little, um, agreements, um, or practices where like one of my favorites is the matchbook. They would like have a matchbook and for every $1 drink that they got someone to buy, they would bend a match forward or for a 50 cent drink, they would bend it backwards. Um, some, uh, bars had systems where the bartender would put like a penny in a certain, um, compartment, you know, in the till every time, you know, um, a male patron bought a drink for a B girl so that they could track it. Although the women like to track it themselves, right. Because like they didn't often trust the bartenders to be, um, accurate in their accounting. Mm-hmm. Um, so the women were not only trying to like deceive men who are buying them bar drinks, but they were also negotiating with, um, and, you know, and often being exploited by bar owners and bartenders as well. So they were really, uh, like navigating kind of a minefield there. Um, and they supported each other in doing so. And they created like professional kind of lingos and terms and, um, helped each other figure out like what to wear and, you know, had a range of practices that were all kind of laid out in these alcoholic beverage control hearings um, about how they, you know, as individuals and then often collectively with other women, not in an organized sense, but in a social sense, um, would sort of figure out how to navigate all of the constraints of this kind of sexualized economy um, in which they were, you know, largely pawns, but trying to make the best of it for themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. So your, um, your third chapter then moves on to uh, Alfred Kinsey's controversial publication, Sexual Behaviour in the Human Female, published in 1953. Um, what do women's responses to this publication reveal about post-war sexual culture? Yeah, I loved these letters. This was the one, this was the chapter that did not originate from anything that started as part of my dissertation, but um, Mm -hmm. was based on new research that I did um, at the Kinsey Institute after I had taken uh, my first tenure track job in the Midwest. And um, these letters were really just um, amazing, right? So there were, there were letters from mostly women um, to um, to Kinsey that I found at the Kinsey Institute. And then later, um, I realized that there are also a lot of, well, many of these were also at the, at the, at the Institute, but some of them were also digitized through newspaper collections, um, letters to the editor, to newspapers around the country, um, from women and also girls, um, who were, um, reacting in, in, you know, um, to the actual publication of their report. So, mm. um, so there are, you know, these kind of two kinds of letters, that reveal some um, somewhat different dynamics, but 
Um, but the letters to Kinsey in particular were because they were assumed to be private, right? Not intended to be published, um, mm. revealed a, a lot about people's own questions about their own sexual lives. Um, and they, um, they revealed the extent to which public discussion of sexual life was so limited and constrained that they just didn't feel that they had access to the information that they needed to be able to make decisions about their own lives. Um, and so they were seeking advice from Kenzie. And sometimes it was really like as blunt as like, what do I do? This is what happened to me. You know, there were stories of, of rape, of sexual assault, of, um, of just like sexual problems with marital partners, um, of specific like things that would probably be characterized at the time as like sexual dysfunctions, frigidity, homosexuality, lesbianism, right? And just if people writing about their own lives or about the lives of those close to them um, and seeking answers. Um, so there was one um, about what I am almost certain, never got to the 100% certainty, um, was about oral sex. So there was a, one from a letter, a letter from a man who had been abroad during the war. And he said when he got back, like his wife had really changed. Um, and um, she seemed particularly interested in oral sex. He never said oral sex. He used all these euphemisms, but I'm reasonably sure that's what he meant. And that he found, mm -hmm. and he found this incredibly like disturbing that he saw it as a perversion. Um, and in fact, the way, the language that he used to talk about it, he talked about perversion, he talked about deviance, um, was so resonant of the ways that people talked about homosexuality and lesbianism, lesbianism at the time that I think it also raised the possibility that it wasn't just oral sex with men that she, that he was disturbed by, but, but the possibility that she had been engaging in oral sex with other women while he was away as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so he, he was like, you know, is it possible for her to recover? Like, basically like, can I stay with her? Can I get her help? Is she ever going to, can she be rehabilitated or has she been corrupted? Right. And it's like this language that thankfully it, it doesn't feel especially familiar anymore. Um, but really gives a sense of, of a couple of things. I mean, one, um, the kind of blurring of boundaries between heterosexuality and homosexuality at the time, right? This idea that, that, that what was really understood to be respectable, normative sex, um, was so limited, right. To, um, presumably at least potentially reproductive heterosexual sex in marriage, that so many other kinds of sexual practices fell outside of that. Maybe we'll, you know, we could call it the charmed circle, right? Um, mm. That um, that so that there was a queerness to so many different kinds of sexual relationships and practices, um, and there was there was this always kind of contested effort to continue to like redraw to draw that boundary between acceptable and unacceptable sex when. The reality was that more and more people were engaging in sexual practices um, with, you know, a wide range of, of people, right, that fell outside of what was considered acceptable. So that, that little circle of acceptable normative sexuality just got more and more embattled and more and more contested, right, to the point where we saw um, in the late 60s um, open assaults on, um, on that order, right, on that uh, on that effort to draw those, you know, those clear boundaries. Um, so that's part of what I like about the fifties is you, you, we, ha we haven't gotten there yet, right? We don't have open organized 
explicit assaults on conventional sexual morality, but we see people in all kinds of ways revolting against it um, and sort of refusing to abide by it or trying to evade it or get around it or compromise with it or in some way coexist in it and with it despite their own desires um, to, you know, to be and do otherwise. Um, mm. And for me, the lens of queer theory really helped to open that up. Um, that I wasn't, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that's part of where queer theory comes into it. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, that's, I mean, I, there were also letters from teenage girls in particular, including two magazines like Coronet magazine and other women's magazines that were published after the Kinsey report came out, um, saying things like, you know, I'm happy, like, you know, saying like everyone else is all up in arms about the Kinsey report, you know, saying that it, on it, you know, it sullies the reputations of women and it's not representative. And, you know, cause there was a pretty widely negative reaction, um, to Kinsey's findings, um, as published in the report. Um, but, uh, but girls would say like, I, you know, I need Like I need this information. <laughs> like someone needs to tell me, right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, I don't know what to do. Right. Um, and, um, this comes up also in the, the chap, the next chapter about, um, dating culture and youth culture um, in the 1950s and early 1960s, and the centrality of going steady, but um, but even within going steady relationships, or as I argue, especially within going steady relationships, um, girls were choosing um, to have sex with their um, with their boyfriends, and they but they knew that that was very much you know, looked down upon, especially, but not only in middle-class contexts. And so they were trying to find ways to justify it. Um, and Kinsey gave them ammunition for that. I mean, they could say like, look, if this, this high percentage of women, you know, had sex outside of marriage, um, then, you know, what we're doing, you know, can't be all that bad. Um, there was also some suggestion in Kinsey and in other kind of sexual science at the time that, in like the marriage and family living literature, even, um, that some couples, um, if they had sex when they were engaged, um, did better in their marriages and had more stable and fulfilling and satisfying marriages. So there was this argument kind of going around that, um, that girls would draw upon to justify, um, having sex with steady boyfriends, even when, as I discuss in the, in the chapter, those, the steady relationships really weren't that steady at all. So like, girls would call their relationship steady. Um, but in fact, like often they would be a couple weeks long or they would have a whole string of steady boyfriends. Right. So like we have this kind of nostalgic, or, uh, um, <laughs> often in our kind of dominant, more conservative political culture, we hear, um, nostalgic representations of, kind of dating in the fifties as mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. like, you know, staple premarital relationships, um, that were really just you know, a step on the road to, to marriage, um, and, you know, family life. And, um, what I found about, about teen going steady couples in the fifties is that, while that was certainly true for some of them, um, for many of them, they were sites in which, um, girls in particular could find, um, space or justification for having fully sexual relationships, um, that, you know, that even when they understood that they were unlikely to, to lead to actual marriage. Right. Um, 
and boys didn't need the justification because they just weren't, uh, you know, um, they weren't told in the same ways by authorities and, and the culture, right. That they shouldn't be having sex until marriage. So it's, you know, there was some pressure on them, but for the most part, they had a kind of sexual license that teen girls didn't have access to. And one of the ways that teen girls got access to it was by creating what a couple sociologists at the time called, um, in love morality, um, which meant like, well, you know, I'm in love with him and we're in a steady relationship, so it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even when on the ground, as I said, those relationships are often fleeting um, and, um, you know, they may or may not ever have had any intention of continuing or, you know, uh, marrying the boys with whom they were having sex. And of course, the down, you know, one of the big downsides of that experimentation is before the widespread availability of reliable birth control, especially for unmarried, you know, teen girls who really had almost no access to reliable birth control in the fifties. Um, this did often mean, um, getting pregnant, um, and, um, depending on sort of class and race, um, and subculture, you know, I mean, across subcultures, of course, that had negative impacts on young women, um, often stunting their educational um, experiences because schools would kick them out um, when they were pregnant, um, um, and also you know subjecting them to increased um, scrutiny and control um, in a wide range of contexts and by medical authorities and their families and institutions, right? Um, but um, but also you know just giving them like me- meaning that they they had to live with the stigma of being you know having having out of wedlock pregnancy. Um, at a time when that was understood to be like a permanent stain on a person's sort of character. Um, but I did find some, as others have found, um, some variation in that um, where, so for like middle class and upper middle class white girls, they were often coerced into, you know, going to um, homes for pregnant mothers, right? Or, um, uh, and pregnant, that doesn't work, for pregnant women, for pregnant girls, Right. Um, and they, and then giving their children up for adoption, even when in many cases they didn't want to. And Ann Fessler has written Mm -hmm. a book about that, um, based on really powerful interviews. Um, but for, um, for black girls in particular, they often did have more space and support within their families to go ahead and have the babies and raise them often with support or co-parenting by their own parents, right? The grandparents of the babies, um, so there was a little bit, a little bit less alienation and stigma, um, and forced separation happening in black communities. But of course the, the educational and economic disadvantages, um, of single motherhood, um, were even more extreme, right? So it was hard, even harder for black girls, um, to be able to support themselves and their families, um, economically. Um, so Um, so, and they had even less, you know, opportunity and resources in all kinds of settings. So racism (laughs) made things much harder for them, although they were more often able to actually raise the children, um, that when they wanted to keep them, um, because adoption really wasn't an option anyway. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. Post-war American white families were doing most of the adoption and they, for the most part, were not interested in raising black children. So, um, so racism is like all over, all over these histories. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, so could you um, uh, just describe a bit more that uh, culture of going steady and how it influenced post-war youth culture and changed sexual standards during the post-war years? Sure. Yeah. So in the 1950s, we saw this, you know, the baby boom, we had the, the age of marriage um, dropped uh, for the first time um, in a long time. And actually it's, it's the only, it's the blip on the demographic uh, kind of curve, right? It's the only period in which the age of marriage, um, at least over, over the last what 150 years or so, um, where the age of marriage dropped and the birth rate skyrocketed. Um, and so, uh, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't have, the, mm-hmm. I don't want to go do numbers cause I don't have them in front of me and I don't want to get them wrong, but it was significant. The, the birth rate significantly increased, um, and children were born closer together. Right. So you have this strange <laughs> kind of anomaly, which, um, often gets represented as the way things used to be when in the United States, when of course it wasn't, it was an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, when uh, large numbers of young women got married, often as teenagers, like 18, 19, or, you know, 20, um, and either didn't therefore enter the economic, you know, market, or um, if they had been working, they left, the, you know, paid economy, um, were encouraged to, you know, they, with their husbands moved to the suburbs, there was white flight, there was, um, racially and sexually discriminatory, but for straight white men, highly beneficial, um, provisions in the GI bill, uh, for the federal state to subsidize, um, private home ownership in redlined white suburbs. Um, and, um, so there was this state underwriting of heterosexual white family formation and private property ownership. Um, in, um, and, and segregation, further segregation, um, in the, in the 1950s. So, um, in that context, there was this idealization of marriage and all things associated with marriage and fertility, right? And the way that that played out in youth culture was largely through this ideal of going steady. So as Beth Bailey has explained, you know, in the, 30s, the kind of dominant dating system was what she calls like rate and date, right? Where the idea was like a girl was popular um, and socially valuable and had social status if she dated a wide range of young men. Um, mm-hmm. And whereas by the time we get to really the end of the war and really picking up by about like 48, 49, um, when things had settled down a little after demobilization. Um, the ideal became something that looked like early marriage, right? Teen sort of adolescent style. Um, and so you had, you know, um, girls getting all kinds of trinkets like pins or bracelets or symbols of having, of being claimed by a steady boyfriend, right? Which were kind of understood to be the, the things that came before the ring, like the engagement ring and the wedding ring, right? So it's, there was this kind of whole cultural and social system idealizing, um, marriage, um, and anticipating marriage, uh, and, um, and, and 
emphasizing hyperfemininity, right? You get the outfits that emphasize the prominence of breasts and small waists and curvy hips, right? Um, and with this whole idea that, which of course was like highly sexualizing, um, but also in a way that was idealizing sort of future marital fertility. Um, but mm-hmm. all of these contradictions in here, right? So like in the, the girls talk about in the fifties, um, how like sex was everywhere, <laughs> like in terms of ads and women's magazines writing about like women's sexual satisfaction. And it was always within marriage, but they're still writing about women's orgasms. Right. I mean, there was this, there was this cultural panic, um, fueled by a very sexist kind of medical and psychiatric industry in the fifties, um, about, um, female frigidity, right. And the inability of women to accept their gendered roles and inferiority, basically (laughs) like within a patriarchal system and patriarchal family structures, um, that would lead women to not be able to reach climax with their husbands um, in a way which would allow their husbands essentially to have like the most, you know, possible, like the most fulfilling sexual experience. Um, Cause that was the primary goal. Um, so, um, so there was all of this writing about like women's orgasms and women's sexual satisfaction um, widely available, but it was always explicitly understood to only apply to married women. And yet you had, um, a culture in which like certainly middle-class, but also I found some evidence that these, the sort of going, the, the going steady culture really did apply in working class communities, um, white and of color of various, of various backgrounds as well. Um, but particularly in middle-class communities, you have these couples, um, teenage couples, right. Who are supposed to look like they're working towards marriage um, and they're exchanging or not exchanging, but girls are getting gifts from their boyfriends, you know, indicating that they're committed. And there's all this talk about sex and sexuality in the culture. And there are these like highly erotic advertisements and, um, and yet they're not supposed to have sex with their boyfriends. Right. And it's mm-hmm, on them mm-hmm. to stop that from happening. It's understood to be their responsibility to protect the sexual value system that prescribes, you know, n- no premarital sex. So, um, so there was this widespread understanding that like, well, boys are, you know, boys are going to be boys, boys are going to try and get what they can get. And it's up to girls to draw the line and hold it. Um, and, um, and there were like, there were, there were articles at the time that were really disturbing that were really quite, you know, edging right up to, if not explicitly sanctioning what we would now see as acquaintance rape, um, saying, well, you know, if girls, if girls give off mixed messages, if they seem, you know, if they seem overly excited or turned on, then like, how can they really expect their boyfriends to stop? Right. Like, so just, you know, really quite like oppressive and kind of violent ideologies towards girls, um, who were shamed, um, really for having sexual feelings. And yet if they were too uptight or weren't at all sexually responsive to their boyfriends, they were seen as, you know, frigid or, um, or just, you know, something wrong, something was wrong with them or would be wrong with them potentially when they got married. Um, so like there was the language at the time of petting, there was this kind of economy of light petting, petting, heavy petting, and then intercourse itself. And one of the things that I do in the book is to really challenge like how meaningful those internal distinctions were in terms of girls embodied experiences, right? So it's clear mm-hmm. that like intercourse is totally different from other forms of sexual touching when the primary concerns are pregnancy and the transmission of sexual in- of infections, right? 
But when it comes to like how girls felt in their bodies and what pleasure felt like and what, what they were doing and what they were feeling, it's not clear that there's such a huge difference between intercourse and you know, oral sex, which we really don't have any way of knowing how common that was at the time. There are almost no studies <laughs> that really deal with it. Um, but which, you know, we know it happened. We don't know how common it was, especially among teenagers. Um, but, or just, you know, sexual touching to orgasm, right? Um, so girls would like, and I talk about one of the letters um, in the book where this girl is like, how am I supposed to know? Like how, you know, when I, when we're, she, the language she uses, when we're inches away, <laughs> like, how do I stop? Right. Um, and it was a, it was a, a really rare source in that she just openly acknowledges her, you know, desire for sex, um, and the conflict that it creates for her that she's the one who has to say no. Um, and she ends up saying, you know, what are we waiting for? Like, why, like, why do we have to say no? Why does it have to be like this? Right. Maybe it doesn't. Um, and so there's this way in which girls at the time, um, especially within the context of study relationships, are starting to just work their way around the expectation that they don't have sex with their boyfriends. Um, and, um, and, we, and, and that gets kind of encoded sociologically in this, with, this, um, with what some sociologists call permissiveness with affection <laughs> or the in love mm-hmm. morality, right? Um, which people, researchers at the time were picking up on, um, they wrote about it primarily in regard to college student populations, because I think the studies were easier to conduct, basically, in that context. Um, but I think there's evidence that it applies, um, at least to some extent, um, with like high school students and, and later adolescents as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. <laughs> thank you. Um, so... Uh, in this chapter and throughout the book as a, a whole, um, how did you balance this this evidence of sort of exploitation and sexual coercion with evidence of increased sexual agency during the post-war years? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very hard. <laughs> it's really, um, I could feel myself at different times when I was dealing with different sources or just in different places in my own life, like getting pulled more towards what felt like kind of the side of emphasizing sexual agency um, and just really wanting to inscribe female sexual desire into the historical record. I think there's, there's been so much writing about, um, about young female sexuality in particular um, in the early to mid 20th century that emphasizes exploitation um, and emphasizes, you know, all of the negative repercussions of family sexual abuse, of sexual assault, um, of, and of voluntary consensual sexual experimentation on the part of girls, um, which, you know, would result in institutionalization and policing and, and pregnancy and stigma and economic deprivation. And all of those forces are still at work in the fifties to some extent, the institutional control elements, um, although still present are waning, um, in the fifties, but they're still there. So all of those sort of negative repercussions are still there and we see it in the sources. So like one of the sources that I used very heavily in the book is the study by the American Social Health Association, previously the American Social Hygiene Association, um, in the 1950s in New York City about the transmission of venereal disease among teenagers with a real focus on like public venereal disease clinics, which meant that all, almost their entire study population were teenagers of color, mostly black or um, Puerto Rican. 
and um, they uh, and they would literally they there were these you know white female social work researchers um, who would go into these public venereal disease clinics and like sit down and ask if they could interview teens often while they were like waiting for results or waiting to be tested. Um, it was an incredibly uh, like difficult kind of set of interviews to interpret because the conditions in which the interviews were conducted were so fraught. Um, Mm -hmm. and there were so many power dynamics, um, racial class age, otherwise, you know, um, between, um, the interviewers and the youth who are being interviewed. Um, but, um, I'm always meant to write like a methods article on trying to work with this particular source. And I just, I've never done it. Um, Mm -hmm. but the, um, but these interviews, um, revealed, I mean, to me, the most important finding of the inter- of the study is was directly contradictory to what the study author is expected and it's and the finding was that the vast vast majority of of girls who um were interviewed um had had sex with a small number of boys or men and um in in what within the study qualified. So they qualified within the study parameters as non-promiscuous. So there was this sort of racist, sexist assumption at the time that girl, you know, girls of color in public venereal disease clinics in New York City were, of course, promiscuous, and that's why they were there, right? Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. no, even within the study's own parameters, they were non-promiscuous. And for the most part, they, like their white middle-class counterparts, were limiting the sex they were having to, um, to relationships, um, Nonetheless, because the boys weren't doing that, right? The boys had many that they were having sex with had many more sexual partners, um, and often um, were infecting the girls uh, and also impregnating them, right? Um, and also, as it turns out, um, across race and class, there was a lot of um, of sexual coercion and assault, right? And that was true in this group as well. So, like within this these interviews, there were like thirty page interviews, and there were close to 250 of them with girls. Um, and so you see evidence both of girls' desire and interest and agency and initiation, um, although that was often hard to get at because you could tell that the social work interviewers sort of disapproved of it. Um, and also, um, you know, coercion and exploitation, um, just, uh, you know, infidelity, dishonesty, um, and um, and actual violence. Right. So all of, I mean, it was so clear to me when I encountered that study that all of these dynamics were enmeshed, right. They were all there. Um, there wasn't, there was no, you know, there's no way I would have somehow emphasized one and not the other. The question is just like how to find the balance. Mm -hmm. Um, and there I was probably somewhat influenced by the lack of attention to female sexual desire and autonomy in the literature more broadly. So I probably emphasized agency and desire a little bit more in order to try to kind of <laughs> overcorrect a little bit um, in the broader historiography. Um, but I wanted to do that without in any way downplaying um, the effects of, you know, of, of, of oppression and patriarchy and homophobia and um, and a, a culture that still saw women and girls as largely, you know, the, the property of men and boys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so your 
Your final chapter makes an important intervention into queer history by outlining the intersection between adolescence and lesbianism in post-war sexual culture. Um, how did queer adolescents chart a course for themselves against the backdrop of a deeply heteronormative culture? Yeah, I love that question, and I'm still answering that question. Um, so this this is the chapter that really became the launching pad for my for the research that I'm doing now, which is expanding, you know, which which is answering that question in a much more expansive way than I did in the book. Um, mm. But I started figuring it out <laughs> for this chapter, and it was clear, especially. Um, for girls that, um, again, you see that resourcefulness, right? So um, one thing that they did was to grab onto and find um, and read discussions of homosexuality and lesbianism at the time, which were increasing rapidly, right? So like you get um, really a lot of social scientific and like popular psychological writing and also pop, um, like, popular fiction, pulp fiction, there's this real explosion of writing, also homophile literature, right? Like the latter, like some girls actually got the latter. Um, and in fact, I, I didn't have it for the book, but I have now written um, or started writing about letters that teenage girls wrote to um, the latter magazine. And then also later in the early seventies um, to Phyllis Lyon and um, Del Martin, who published the book Lesbian Woman in 1973. And then, so they started writing to them. So, um, but in, before, before that book was available, the latter was being published. And um, so girls were incredibly persistent and resourceful in finding what they could. Um, and there are stories like um, Paula Giddings, I think talks about this, about going to the library and, you know, she, she knew she wouldn't be permitted to like check out books on homosexuality um, Either she would be told she couldn't because it was in a restricted part of the library or, you know, the librarian would like tell her mother. Um, but mm -hmm. she you know, like went to the relevant section and would sit in the library and just read Freud, Kinsey, you know, sexology literature, as well as um, more contemporary writing um, about lesbianism. So, um, so in many cases, you know, girls found literatures that were available and passed them between one another when they could. Um, especially pulp novels. Um, I remember, oh, was, uh, I think it was, I think it was Kay Forrest, one of the, um, really wonderful, um, authors of lesbian pulp fiction, um, talks about how she, um, she as a teenager went into like the local, like, you know, convenience store basically and would, and bought, um, or in some cases other girls stole, um, the, um, works of lesbian pulp fiction, right? Um, and then would like hide them or tear off their covers and pass them around to each other. Um, so I've, I'm always blown away by like how teenagers get hit, get their hands on um, public discourse um, and ex and you know expert of various kinds kind of writing, right? Um, especially writing by lesbians themselves um, that give them some way of making sense of themselves and putting themselves in a larger you know framework and universe. Um, and coming to understand mm -hmm. what their what their feelings meant, um, what kind of life they might lead, um, what you know, what lesbianism even is, <laughs> how it's caused. I mean, in many cases, they are searching for answers themselves. Is this because, as dominant literature suggested at the time, like my parents were bad parents? Is you know, is this why? Why do I feel like this? What does it mean? Um, is it like what can I do? <laughs> right. 
Um, so just all the ways that girls were struggling and often, you know, really managed to find resources to help them make sense of their, their feelings and, and to find a place in the world for themselves when they looked forward um, into their futures and even to be able to imagine a future for themselves, right? Because at the time there, there was no such thing as, you know, a vision of womanhood that in any kind of mainstream sense that didn't involve a husband and probably children, right? So there was just this question of like, how is it even possible to grow up, right? And be a lesbian. And that's where in the chapter I talk about how like, well, the psychological literature basically suggested that it wasn't possible that if one identified as a Mm -hmm. lesbian um, or exhibited persistent lesbian tendencies, right? Um, Then what that meant was that one was essentially psychologically stunted and um, sort of suspended in a kind of permanent adolescence or, you know, adolescent phase of development. Um, and that there was no possibility for any kind of psychological maturity um, for someone who did not um, live a, a heterosexual life. Um, and uh, some of my favorite sources were memoirs in particular in which women just rejected that openly and said, you know, like, here I am, you know, living a mature, fulfilling, uh, adult life, right? Like as a lesbian and really kind of, you know, flipping the bird to like all of the, the mm-hmm. more, um, stigmatizing, um, writers within, you know, social scientific and psychological communities, um, in the fifties. Um, so yeah, so let's see. So lots of, access to resources and discourse. And then also um, sometimes girls found um, they knew of boys uh, in their, in their schools or their communities or sometimes their families who were gay or effeminate and therefore sort of suspected of being gay. Um, And sometimes the boys would actually connect the girls to places and people, even including like taking them to bars or introducing them to other people that they knew um, who could lead them to, um, Mm -hmm. to like, you know, communities or, um, or other, you know, spaces um, in which they could kind of come out and figure out who they were and make contact with others. Um, so that's a that's kind of a fun part of the story. Um, sometimes girls, either with the help of boys or on their own or with other girls, would find um, lesbian bars. So, like, I love. There's a story that I talk about in the chapter where a girl had a she she and her steady boyfriend and her best friend and her best friend's steady boyfriend <laughs> would go to this lesbian bar and like they were there ostensibly just to kind of gawk, right? But it, but this particular girl was not just gawking, right? She was studying and she was figuring this out, and then she would go back there um, on her own. Um, so she, you know, even sometimes in the context of ostensibly like heterosexual relationships or actual heterosexual relationships, right? Um, girls would uh, discover places and people that they could come back to or revisit um, in order to make connections. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I mean, sometimes they really did navigate um, penal institutions. So like girls were institutionalized in psychiatric institutions for um, expressing same-sex desire or being found in sexual, you know, relationships with other girls. Um, they were, you know, there are instances in which families moved in order to separate girls who are in couples, uh, you know, with other girls. Um, girls were kicked out of school. Um, they, you know, there were there was definite institutional um, punishment of girls who um, refused to or were failed to. Um, to keep it to themselves, right, or to hide um, their feelings and desires and relationships. 
Um, but I also found like that for girls, and I think this is one of the many places in which things were so different um, for girls than for boys at the time. Um, girls often successfully went right under the radar screen, right, in having relationships with other girls. So whether it was like playing games like house or doctor, even as younger children, um, which they would often later as adults um, look back on and incorporate into their stories or their genealogies, right, of like how they became lesbians. They would often like look back and talk about how like they were playing kind of sexual games with other girls in the neighborhood when they were like five or six. Um, that's, and you know, it's always interesting methodologically to figure out through oral history, you know, which childhood stories are sort of selected as relevant or meaningful, um, in crafting a narrative, um, that, you know, in which coming out and lesbian identity is ultimately very important. Um, so there are lots of questions around the sort of construction of oral history narratives there. Um, but that's something that comes mm -hmm. up quite often in lesbian oral history interviews. And I use a lot of them, um, for the book, um, I really just drew upon um, interviews that others had already conducted um, because there's this amazing phenomenon, which is like there's all of this lesbian oral history out there and all of these, almost all interviewers start with the question, like, tell me about your childhood. Where did you come from? Um, but, and then sort of get to the meatier questions that they're, they're interested in for their, for their projects, right? Um, and no one has really gone back and used all of this material about their childhoods. Um, and so like, that's part of what I'm doing now. And I'm also conducting my own oral history interviews, but for the book, I was using other people's existing interviews and there are many more that I included in the book. Um, and, um, and oh, lost my train of thought. Let's see. Oh, oh. So the like girls games, um, but they also would just have sleepovers. So like, there's so many stories of, you know, girls doing what girls were understood to do at the time, right? Like having their girlfriend, their girl, their female friends, like over, um, for sleepovers and, you know, experimenting sexually or just having fully sexual relationships for months or years. Right. And like not, and with, without others and without their parents really knowing, or in some cases with more persistent relationships with their parents kind of suspecting, but in some kind of open secret arrangement, basically where the parents just didn't just made a point of like not fully finding out or not really asking too many questions. Um, and, and sort of allowing, uh, these relationships to continue. Um, so there is, there's a lot of cover, I think for girls in, um, forming intimacies with other girls, um, in this period, it was also, there was an interesting, it was a little bit different, like with, with Freudianism, right. And its influence in the fifties, there was an understanding that girls, um, sometimes that, that youth went through a bisexual, bisexual phase, right. And that specifically lesbianism, um, or, you know, erotic dynamics between girls, um, were often a phase of development that then again, right. And the natural like heterosexual scheme of things girls would grow out of. So even when parents mm -hmm. did suspect that there was like a little bit more intimacy than they would have liked between girls and their friends, they often just sort of chalked it up to a phase. Um, and of course for many girls, it was a phase, right? <laughs> like they, you know, that was a part of their childhoods and was not, you know, did not become a part of their adulthoods. Um, but for many people who eventually identified, um, as lesbians, um, those, those childhood experiences were very meaningful and important. And, um, in some cases, surprisingly, um, kind of tolerated or, or, you know, even tacitly encouraged. Um, so I think there's, 
there's a wide range of experience there. Um, one thing that I touch on in the book and I want to do more with now is, is looking at gender difference there. So for girls um, or youth we might think of as trans youth, right, um, assigned female at birth, kids um, who didn't really ever identify as girls or who identified as boys or highly masculine internally, but were never sort of allowed the space in the 50s or 60s to voice that or live that um, uh, or change their bodies as a result, right? Um, they So for those who were more masculine, they had less latitude um, to uh, to have these kind of intimacies with other girls. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And they were more, they were more, you know, yes, they could be tomboys, but if they got to a certain age and they were still highly masculine, they were seen as increasingly suspect and they were scrutinized and policed and bullied um, more so than more gender normative kind of feminine um, girls. Um, and so I sort of find there's an interesting, there are interesting distinct stories where the more feminine girls had more latitude and space and were less scrutinized, but also were often much more confused um, and um, didn't really necessarily see themselves as all that different, um, you know, didn't see themselves in the literature that they may have found about lesbianism, which often did emphasize still some version of gender inversion, right, and female masculinity, um, so they often continued for longer in a space of confusion and illegibility, um, isolation and alienation. Um, but they were pleased and, and, uh, subject to violence, I think less often than the more masculine, um, presenting girls and youth who were pleased more and more heavily, but also, um, often more quickly, um, figured out, what it was to be a lesbian and connected to other lesbians in ways that validated their desires and identities. Um, so there's, there's, I think, kind of different, slightly different gendered stories there. Although I did not articulate that in the book because I just wasn't there yet uh, in terms of the research. Right. Right. Well, it sounds like that dovetails nicely into my final question, which is what are you working on now? Right. So I'm working on queer youth history with a focus on girls and assigned female at birth, um, youth. Um, and actually, no, I should say like, <laughs> you can tell I'm in the midst of this. I'm, all, I'm I would include assigned male at birth youth also who identified as girls. So people with a proximity to, um, or a perceived identification with, um, or assignment with, um, girlhood. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm looking at starting around the same period as this, like 40s, but expanding all the way into the mid-1980s, probably about 83, like right around the time that HIV AIDS really picks up and also the early formation of, of gay-straight alliances and social services for gay and lesbian youth that all sort of really came together in the early to mid-80s. Um, so I'm ending there. Um, so I'm interested in the period um, before, in those decades before gay and lesbian youth really existed as a demographic and cultural and social category, right? Um, I want to know how same-sex desiring um, and gender non-conforming girls and youth um, figured out, you know, what they were feeling, what it meant about who they were, how to connect with others, how to manage, evade, or handle... um, scrutiny and discipline and punishment as a result, um, how they existed and navigated 
school environments and peer relationships and social relationships, how they formed um, romantic and erotic connections with other youth and or with adults, um, and how they kind of created worlds and lives for themselves in um, in cultures which really didn't earlier in the chronology um, acknowledge their existence later in the chronology you know, really include them within emerging gay and lesbian communities. So one of the most interesting aspects of this research to me so far is in the 1970s, when there, of course, were gay and lesbian organizations, there were, there were lesbian feminist organizations, there were, you know, dozens, if not by the end of that decade, you know, hundreds of publications and newsletters, right, coming out of gay and lesbian groups and communities. Um, but there, and there was some discussion of youth, um, but in ways that were still largely fearful. Um, there was just so much fear about um, including youth in those communities because of the legal scrutiny um, that it would involve and also because of the really damaging and profound effects of this myth of pedophilia um, that was associated mm-hmm. particularly with gay men, but also to, to a significant degree, significant degree, I think, with lesbians. So there was this fear in adult lesbian um, and gay communities and organizations of associating with children, with legal minors. Um, and so they were, youth were excluded from mailing lists, from actual events, right? They were uh, like kept out of les- lesbian feminist coffee houses, or if they, you know, if they got in, um, they were looked down upon or sort of insulted or scrutinized, um, um, or just kind of ignored, right? Um, and as it turns out, lesbian teenagers really didn't appreciate that um, and and wrote about it. So um, I actually just had an article come out in um, Girlhood Studies about this. Um, uh, oh, I think it's called um, Your Your Young Lesbian Sisters, um, and it is um, it features the writing um, letters and sort of letters to the editor to these organizations and also letters to advice columnists and stuff, um, by youth, uh, who were talking about how, um, how they were protesting the idea that somehow it was better to be like a young lesbian in the seventies than it was like in the fifties. And they say like, look, when you guys were young adult lesbians, you know, you may have thought you were the only one and that was terrible and that was isolating. But now I know I'm not the only one because I see you, right? But you won't acknowledge my existence and you won't let me into your spaces. And honestly, that's not Mm -hmm. any better, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so um, these kind of intergenerational dynamics and tensions um, in 70s kind of lesbian and lesbian feminist communities are part of this project. Um, and, um, And the emergence to some degree of queer youth activism um, especially in, in the late seventies, um, in certain places, especially New York and California, not surprisingly, um, actually even, even back into the sixties, like with Vanguard, um, and youth in the 1960s, like in San Francisco. Um, and of course, like there were queer youth and trans youth present at Stonewall and Compton's Cafeteria Riot and Dewey's, right. These were largely like economically vulnerable, um, homeless, queer and trans youth who were in many cases at the center of um, beginning of, you know, gay liberationist activism that we don't necessarily see as part of youth history. Um, We often think of it as, you know, the history of of gay rights or gay liberation. Um, So there's, there are, um, oh, but the, sorry, in the 70s, the youth started um, in certain places like New York forming actual school groups 
um, and this organization called like Gay Youth New York. And we see um, Bagley, the um, Boston area gay and lesbian youth um, in Boston. So we see some actual like more organized activism um, but in those decades, so it's so activism is a part of the story. Um, it's still very much a social history. Um, I'm looking across, like I do in Bad Girls, and looking at a wide range of places um, and kinds of communities. I'm trying to incorporate um, rural, small town, sort of suburban and urban communities. Mm. Um, looking at you know youth from a lot of different states and places. Um, and I'm not in this in this project. I'm not going to be able to create like any kind of definitive national history of, of these youth, but I would like to take a broad look um, and uh, do this work to get us started, right? So that we can then, what I'm hoping to see is just a, a proliferation of historical work on queer youth, um, on, on boys and, um, and male-identified or masculine-identified trans youth as well. Um, so it's, you know, we, we, youth are just really not a part right now of LGBT history. And that's something mm-hmm. I would really like to help change. Great. Well, that sounds really fascinating. And I, I look forward to reading that work at some point in the future. Thanks. I look, I look forward to writing it. That's a lot of what I'm working on this summer. So <laughs> let's hope it's a productive summer. <laughs> Great. <laughs>